Benifer is back. Brad and Jen are friends again. And Paris Hilton is somehow still making headlines. 20 years later, we're living in the world that the 2000s tabloids created. On this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a decade of American life through the trash we love to consume. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. It is a euphoria reunion because I'm Joanna Robinson and I'm here with Nora Princiati. Hi, Nora. How are you? Hi, Joanna. I'm doing very well. It's fun to pod with you. It is. Um, I just want to do like really quickly, actually, before we get into the show we're going to talk about today, The Girl from Plainville, I want to spring this on you. You weren't able to talk to me about the euphoria finale. So I just want to get your like your a super quick and travel schedules. <laughs> I want to get your super quick, uh, you know, impression on the Euphoria finale. Very sad, very upsetting, very hard for me. Um, I'm going to be honest, didn't love it. Loved the penultimate setup of this season. I, I just that was so predictable, right? Because people heard me say eight billion times that Euphoria is borderline too much for me. And euphoria trying to do a climactic moment is inevitably too much for me. And I I just didn't think that there was any way to like turn things up to 11 when I already felt like things had been at a 15 that wasn't (laughs) going to be sort of just, okay, well, yeah, saw that coming. It was a hat on a hat for Nora uh, for the euphoria finale. Uh, We are here to talk about a new show. Also with some troubled teens, uh, it's The Girl from Plainville. Uh, This is a drama adaptation of a true crime story, the death of uh, Conrad Roy III in 2014. Uh, It's based on a 2017 Esquire article by Jesse Barron, um, and he also served as a consulting producer on the show. This Case was also the subject of a 2019 HBO documentary, I Love You Now Die. Uh, The first three episodes uh, dropped on Hulu today, and then the rest of the eight-episode season will be playing out week by week. This seems to be sort of like the Hulu model that they're preferring right now. So we are covering episode one, Starcross Lovers and things like that. Episode two, Turtle, and episode three, Never Have I Ever. Uh, Two of those episodes were directed by the great Lisa Cholodenko. So, you know... Blanket spoiler warning for the fact that this is a true story that happened. So all of actual reality is on the table and far as far as spoilers go. But before we get into sort of details of these episodes, Nora and I wanted to give you sort of a blanket. Let's say you haven't watched the first three episodes of, of The Girl from Plainville. Nora and I wanted to give you sort of our blanket thoughts on the genre of true crime in general, and also whether or not we thought the show is something that you might want to you know, tune in for. Maybe, maybe Nora says, don't do it. I don't know. We'll find out live together. Uh, so, so Nora, let's start with you. What is your taste for true crime in general? Like how, how is this as a genre for you? So pretty high. I would say that I tend to, um, the truer the adaptation, the close to sort of pure documentary, mm-hmm. the happier I tend to be. Okay. Um, and the more interested I tend to be in things. I, I sometimes, I like the genre, particularly in podcast form. Um, 
sometimes. Are you a murderino? Like, is that? No, you like? I don't even oh, know what okay. that is. Our fa- I think that's the, what the listeners of our favorite murder, my favorite mur- murder call themselves. Murderinos. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, wow. You learn something new every day. Um, but I do like, I, I watch a lot of law and order when I'm cleaning my apartment, you know, like I do, I would say that I, I more than dabble in the genre. I'm not the biggest true crime fan in general. I don't listen to murder podcasts. Um, I don't watch a lot of like docs about it and stuff like that. And so for me, the bar on this was pretty high in terms of does this show make a case for itself to exist since there has already been a great in-depth article. This was a, a, a really widely reported story. I somehow missed it entirely, but this was a really, really widely reported story in 2014. We'll get into like some specifics of the case in a second. Um, but so this, this huge Esquire article exists. There's already been a documentary. Like, why is this, is this drama also here? And that's a question we've sort of been asking ourselves about a couple different shows recently, like we crashed or the dropout, like these shows that are inventing Anna that are based on podcasts or documentaries or articles, you know, do we need to hear this story again if we're already familiar with it? My answer in this case is yes, uh, based on one very specific performance. I actually really liked the show a lot. Uh, Nora, how are you feeling after you've watched the first three? How are you feeling? It, it sounds like maybe similar to you in the sense that if I were to make one argument for why the show should exist or why someone should watch this, it would be if they're interested in watching some very, very good acting. Now, if that's not enough for someone to <laughs> yeah. override the fact that this is a dramatization of something really, really sad and dark, I would totally understand that. And in a, there are some sort of interesting and occasionally uncomfortable intersections for me between m- my interest in understanding this story in a way that's true to life and my interest as a, a television watcher. Um, because I would say, for instance, that, okay, true crime definitely definitionally is a story taken from a real life criminal case or, or something of that sort, right? Yeah. There's also the sort of true crime aesthetic, which is why I say like, okay, law and order is in some ways not true crime, but it has the vibe of it. It has sort of like the mystery pacing and cops and lawyers and courtrooms scenes and ways of unfolding action. Mm-hmm. I probably, um, you know, I watched the trailer for this show to kind of get a sense of, is this just going to be too much to take or should I give it a whirl? And one thing that really put me at ease was some of the aesthetics being very much like, okay, some of the drama here is going to really unfold in a courtroom which mm-hmm. is a little bit more sterile and less just like gutting than yeah. some alternatives. And that was something that made me much more comfortable with the idea of watching this show. Now, that's not where I think the the most impressive features of the this show are taking place and the ones that are actually like maybe taking a point of view or attempting to offer a telling of who people in these really crazy, scary, awful moments and, and events were. And sometimes I don't feel like that stuff sort of like, I want the show to be a little easier to watch than it is, but a one reason would be there's some really phenomenal performances. So to premise the case, um, you know, for, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, Conrad Roy III, or Coco as he goes by, um, you know, killed himself in the summer of 2014. And as, uh, you know, investigators looked further into the case, which apparently is par for the course in Massachusetts, this is something that they would like normally do. Um, It became clear that his text-based relationship with this girl from another town, Plainville, Michelle Carter, um, in her messages... I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to like tidily sum up this case, but you could argue that in her messages she's encouraging him to kill himself. Um, I think the case that this show makes and some of the you know articles and documentaries around that is that it is much more complicated than that. 
But what happened then is that Michelle is tried um, for on account of manslaughter, I believe, um, you know, for her involvement in his death, even though it was, she wasn't physically there. Um, I believe she was tried for involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter. So I think that there's a couple things at play here. Um, you know, since this is a show about a suicide, um, there have been a lot of conversations recently, the last couple of years, about how suicide is handled in um, in our in our drama and our TV. And I think a big spark off point for that conversation was the Netflix series Thirteen Reasons Why, which uh, was heavily criticized for sensationalizing and maybe even romanticizing suicide. And I think, um, you know, if you don't want to watch a show in which uh, you know, a young a young man kills himself at all. I completely understand. But what I will say is if you're hesitant to watch it, I think the way that it's depicted is extremely sensitive and uh, you know, almost oblique. Um, do you have any thoughts about that after the first three episodes? Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. And it's giving you a lot of in an in a lot of ways, it's commenting on how disturbing the act of romanticizing suicide is. Yeah. Exactly. So it's almost oh, hugely. the inverse of that criticism. Exactly. Hugely. And I think that um, each episode, I watch screeners, so I don't know how it's positioned on Hulu, but each episode began and ended with suicide prevention warning screens, you know, which is something that 13 Reasons Why I think only put up after they got critiqued, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is a show that is very aware of the sensitivity of what it's trying to handle here. And you've got the added interest this this case was so sensational and it has so much interest because the question is how could this have possibly happened how could any human and in this case we're talking about Michelle do something like this and again i think the show makes a really good case for it's much more complicated than you're thinking i read this great interview with um with Jesse Barron, who wrote the uh, Esquire, the original Esquire article, uh, and he gave another interview to Esquire this week about his work on the show. And what he said is that, you know, he's from Massachusetts. When the when the ca- court case came up, he he went down there and he was covering the case. And what he saw all the other journalists doing were the very black and white read of the case, which is like she's heartless, she's a monster, she's a psychopath, all this sort of stuff. And then this poor young boy, and what Jesse Barron did is he, you know, in a, in a, in a great act of journalism, he like moved to Massachusetts, got to know everyone in the family, lived down there and told a much more nuanced story of, of all the major players here. And I think that's what the show is really admirably trying to do is give you a really complex portrait of everyone involved and make it clear that it isn't quite so black and white. Um, one last thing I want to say before we get into specifics of the episode is that the creative team here, Liz Hanna, uh, who's also involved in the dropout and I actually see a lot of overlap between the dropout and the show in terms of like empathy for a tough to root for young woman. Not that they're ask- they're not asking you to root for her, but I think they're asking you to try to understand her a little bit better than you might otherwise. And then, as I mentioned, Lisa Cholodenko, uh, who directed The Kids Are All Right, and also the recent great Netflix series, Unbelievable, um, is also here for a couple episodes. So it's in it's in tremendously good hands. Um, but I, I want to start with, as we get into specifics, I want to talk about the, the cornerstone performance that the real reason this wouldn't work at all without, which is Elle Fanning as, as Michelle Carter. So let me just throw to you right away and say... How do you feel about this performance, Nora? Yeah, she's it, she's pretty unbelievable. This is definitely a show where even after just watching one episode, the performers were their characters for me. If I closed my eyes and pictured Elle Fanning in the show, my brain had lost the association that she's Elle Fanning. And I always think that's a very good... It's like, you know how they say you're fluent in another language if you can dream in it? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's a very good like litmus test for an actor's performance on television. There is the combination of desperation and neediness with some ability to turn on manufactured charm 
And then something just really spooky and creepy that somehow feels real coming from within, you know, a, a teenage girl. And it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, another piece of that, I think most of that is just due to the fact that she does an incredible job as an actor. But the costuming, um, I'm not sure if this shows up. I, I hadn't totally noticed it in the episodes that I saw, but I read something that indicated that at some point, Elle Fanning has like a little prosthetic that raises her hairline that made her look more like Michelle. It's pretty, the physical element of it is also pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, the casting on on everyone, at least the the core actors, they do look a lot like their characters. Um, And Michelle had a really, if you Google image searches uh, Michelle, she had a very dramatic look for the courtroom, which we'll eventually see in the show. But I think that, Elle Fanning as an actress who I really, really like is always someone who has seemed like a little mannered to me. Like there's always just like a little layer of artifice in her performance. And that suits some roles really well. Like I love her in The Great, which is one of my favorite shows. It's on Hulu. Um, But that show is so dramatic and over the top that her like theater kid energy like really matches it. And it's even more perfect for Michelle, who is constantly performing. when we meet her, she's crying over over this death. Um, and she's just doing this incredible over-the-top crying that is phony, but not I, I don't know how to describe what she's doing here. And and I think you only really see the true artifice of it when she she breaks first to like yell at her sister to close the door and then to like show her friends who are not really her friends um what she wants to wear to the funeral it's the the mood bouncing is incredible and and as you say it's it's spooky and i think something smart that the show does is give us these you know these girls who come to comfort her give their unease and their confusion over her mood is our unease and confusion you know i think it's really interesting and it gets sort of mixed up in okay was she always like this or is some of this the byproduct of she has these weird mannerisms? She is a little bit of a, a needy person, an attention seeker, but that's also pushed people away from her and maybe made her really lonely, yeah. which only exacerbates the behavior. So it's, it, it is. And again, I've only seen the first three and you know, I'm, I'm obviously familiar with the story from real life, but there's certainly something that leaves you wanting more in the way of explanation of at minimum, just the show's point of view on why she is the way she is and what exactly that means. There's this description from the original Esquire article that I really loved of Michelle. I'm just going to read it out. Um, Jesse wrote, if Michelle had a defining characteristic, it was a cheery relentlessness. If you were kind to her, she would thank you so much it was confusing. If she upset you, she would apologize 50 times and apologize for apologizing. Not quite part of any group. She sometimes overcompensated, lavishing attention in sudden intense waves. It's just like, it's a perfect, like, this is a pitch perfect description of the performance that we're seeing here and, and the way the character is written into the show, the way she is sort of like unctuously sweet or the way in which she uses those apologies to get out of something terrible that she's done. You know, if you think about like the fundraiser that she puts together every time Connor's actual best friend calls her out on something, she just, you know, she goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. I just want this to be perfect. And, and, you know, people relent and it works for her, but she's not doing it in a way where she's like twirling her mustache evilly as she does it. There's a way in which she buys into her own narrative that makes it so much more complicated than that. Do you know what I mean? Well, she's, she's manipulative and it's interesting to watch her manipulate other people because at the heart of the case is if she manipulated Conrad into committing suicide. Yeah. Yeah. But her, her manipulations are kind of transparent, which does, which kind of in a weird way defangs a little bit of her potency and makes you question like, okay, but she's sort of like, you can tell that stuff's not right here and that she's, she's 
easy to see through. She just is sort of shameless in how she'll wrench things out of people. But it's not as though she's this like total mastermind who's able to trick everybody around her into doing her bidding and her her will without them even knowing it. Like they definitely know it. It's just so uncomfortable that everybody just kind of goes along. Right. So yeah. the the spectrum of uh like she is able to sort of push people to do around her to do a lot of things, but she's not able to do it totally seamlessly, I think gets at the central confusion and just cloudiness of everything. Hanging over all of this, um like everything we see of Michelle because we, we meet her in present. The, I think the show handles the jumps through time pretty deftly because basically if Conrad's alive, we know we're in a flashback. And if he's not, we know we're in the present. Um, but hanging over what we see is this idea is that we know at some point she texted to Conrad, just drink bleach and other things like that. Like that, that is something we see the text messages. We know that that happened. We will find out, the context for that in the future as flashbacks like un- un- unroll, but that's just looming. We know that she typed that at some point. And so to reconcile that with this extremely vulnerable young girl who's got an eating disorder, who has a, a bad relationship with exercise, who has, you know, does not seem to have friends actually um all of that it, it it puts you in a really uncomfortable complicated space and holds you there you know this whole series which is honestly fascinating can we talk about glee absolutely it's exactly where i was going okay. i am as as somber and upsetting as this show is um there are moments of extreme, oh my God, I can't believe I'm watching this in a delightful way. It feels odd to say. The real Michelle Carter was obsessed with Glee, was obsessed specifically with Leah Michelle, who plays Rachel on Glee. And uh, we see this right at the opening. We see like sort of a cutout of Leah Michelle on her wall. She's watching Glee. She's watching Glee during the montage of opening texts. And then we see her watching Glee throughout Um Corey Monteith, the, uh, who played Finn, who played the you know Rachel's boyfriend on the show and was Leah Michelle's real life fiance at one point, died in 2013 of a drug overdose. So that's sort of like in the mix here, and so we end episode one with this incredible performance by Elle Fanning of Rachel's eulogy for Finn that happened in the show Glee, and a performance of Make You Feel My Love. I think I've never seen anything. I've enjoyed more on television yet this year than that moment. How did you feel about it, Nora? Totally. And and that in a weird way is a good example of where at times watching this show, I've I it's just made me think about what sort of what is it to be entertained by something that was a, a real life mm-hmm. tragedy? Yeah. But that was a moment where I felt, and again, maybe there's something a little bit uncomfortable about just saying this so explicitly, but where I felt both like what an insight into the thing that this is tackling and also, holy crap, this is good television because it is so weird. It doesn't feel like it could possibly be real, but it's also, I think there's something about knowing that that actually was something that was really, really compelling to her and something that she romanticized and, and that had created an image of uh, death mm-hmm. as something that was sensationalized in her own mind. Um, and that created this sort of spotlight moment for the romantic part- partner that Monteith sort of left behind. Um, there's something about knowing that that's all real. That is so spooky, but the performance is so good that, it, it makes it all the more powerful because it's just like, okay, I, f- I feel like I have a visual representation of what this actually was. And it is so strange. And the, we, you know, we were just talking about Elle Fanning's sort of unctuousness. And like, that is exactly what Leah Michelle's performance as Rachel Ungley is. And like she, as she's doing this eulogy, and then I think later she says something and her sister calls her out for like just lifting a line from Glee as she's trying to describe her her dramatic over the top, uh, you know, grief or something like that. But I just 
the way she matches Leah Michelle's intonation and performance, the way that Elle Fanning does that. And then the performance of the song, which has the backing, the, the backing, and then the backing drops out to make it, and then the score comes in to make it like a horror movie. I mean, I, again, incredible television, just extremely good. Um, and it's not the last we'll see of of the Glee thing on the show, but I was just like, you know, it's it's one of those things where I like had to look up. My jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it was happening. And I had to look up, you know, whether or not this was true of Michelle Carter. And it was. So uh, there's also, we also in the opening see, see a shot of um, a copy of The Fault in Our Stars, the John Green book, um, which is about, you know, a young man who dies and the young woman who mourns him. And um, was part of this like YA dying teens sort of craze is what I I would call craze is an odd word but you know trend of like sort of spearheaded by this book but not isolated to this book right. um, and so I, I just think it does a really smart job of putting all this specifically teenage girl pop culture material in the water and not doing like a blaming Columbine on video games. Like Glee is not responsible for what happened here, but it's in, it's just in the soup of what's going on in Michelle Carter's head, you know? Right. If, no, if it hadn't been Glee, it would have been something else, but Glee is the, it, somehow it makes a lot of sense that it was Glee. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I want to talk about Michelle specifically, and this is another thing that I, you know, was wanted to look up after I saw how the show treated it is we meet um, this girl, Susie, who was a friend of Michelle sort of concurrently while she was texting Conrad. They had a really close friendship. We see them sort of bonding a little bit over Glee, um, having a lot of sleepovers, um, you know, and and some interesting looks. And so my question was, um, you know, what is the what is the queer narrative around Michelle Carter in real life? And uh it's def it's part of, you know, you can you can Google it for yourself. It's definitely part of the case itself. And it's definitely part of a lot of people's um, speculations around certain motivations. So that's not something that feels at all, again, sensationalized, but it just feels like an accurate representation of part of Michelle's whole, you know, teenage girl confusion. She's someone who is deeply uncomfortable in her own body as evidenced by her eating and exercising um, habits. And then she's got some confusions, I think, about her sexualities or, or lack of clarity. And that's also all in the mix. Do you know? Yeah, I think um I think the girl's name in, in reality was Alice. And yeah. that was part of the piece as well. Um I don't know if I, I imagine there's a little bit more. Um I think of what I've seen, they only sort of get to the the start of yeah. them being close. Um so I'm curious to see where that goes. I think that's the only character where they changed the name from Alice to Susie. And I think that's just because. I think they change. I think they change the names of all the friends. Oh, well, the friends. Okay. Yeah. Um, which, right. which that feels that I, yeah. I respect that decision. Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk here about how you feel about uh, these characters in general? Or do you want to hit a few more specifics before you give your overall thesis about the show. Let's let's keep going a little bit. All right, let's hit Colton Ryan as as Conrad. This is a really interesting uh performance, I think, as well. Uh, matching Elle Fanning's performance, I think. Um Colton Ryan's not a performer I'm very familiar with. I'm not a Dear Evan Hansen uh fan personally, but he was in the stage show and then was also in the film uh who and he played the young man who kills himself um in the film. Um we barely meet Conrad in the first episode, right? We get like uh, his self tape uh, talking about social anxiety is like all we see of him. And then we get to know him in these flashbacks. Um, how are you feeling about this, this actor and this performance? Yeah, he's, he's, I think he's really good. Um, you know, it's, first of all, I think it would be sort of, it's a big challenge to hold your own opposite Elle Fanning in, in her role here. And I think he's able to do that. I so I agree with you that I think just sort of definitionally when he's present generally speaking it's very easy to understand it as a as a flashback. Um I could use one fewer sort of gimmicks hmm. because they have okay so when they're texting they have them in person with each other. Mhm. 
And then they, and then there are the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Then I, I think there's, um, I think we're sort of being led to understand that Michelle is essentially having panic attacks at certain points when like there's this orchestral score mm. that's really dissonant and loud and it comes up while she's freaking out about something. There's maybe one too many just sort of like, this means this, or this is how we're mm. doing this things in here. Yeah. Where I, I could use maybe if one of those things were just sort of presented plainly um, without kind of a gimmick for it, I would appreciate that. But because um, sometimes when he when he's present, but when it's actually supposed to represent conversations that they had via text, sometimes it, it throws me a little bit. Um, but I think he's really good. In the first three episodes, is there anything beyond that basketball court conversation that is a text message? exchange I think it's just the basketball court okay um so and I and that was the one that I had trouble with it just took me a little bit to be like I, how did he get what's going on but maybe I'm just a <laughs> dodo no no not at all um I think um I hear you on that absolutely and I think you know for some people I think a, a Chiron a date Chiron on a flashback wouldn't hurt um especially if you're watching the show casually um I think that uh I will say the text message thing, I really appreciate. And here's why. Because most of their interaction took place over text message. Incredible amount of text messaging over a couple of years, during which they only met up in person a couple of times. And this is something that modern TV and film have struggled with for years and years and years, is how do you make a text conversation feel dynamic? Um, you know, and, and they've experimented with different things. You can see, read the text on the phone screen. You can have it pop up, et cetera, et cetera. I really love what they did here with the in-person thing, because then you're watching these two people connect and disconnect, um, and all that sort of stuff. You know, we'll see more of their text exchanges in the future. And I think if we were just watching them text each other in, in separate rooms, that would be a really tough way to try to understand their connection. Do you know what I mean? I think I mostly agree. And fundamentally to the extent, which is pretty minimal, that I was thrown by that, it could have been solved with just a little, like the effect could have been the same. They could have been, you know, shot as if they were in the same place, but there could have been a Chiron or, you know, maybe the, the, text could have been on the side on the screen as well or something mm-hmm. yeah. just to indicate, just to make it really clear. I, I think that's right, particularly as you can read it as they both blew these messages and their significance up in their heads clearly to such a great degree that it would make sense that it was sort of all imagined. Like, you are, I, I almost take it as like, you're entering the fantasy world that each one of them constructed in their minds as they were exchanging all of these messages. The only thing that I go back and forth on other than just being a little bit thrown is that this story is fundamentally about texting. Yeah. And some of that difficulty of how do you represent a relationship that was almost entirely carried out through phones and through texting, like you want to get a sense of that. So again, I'm curious if once I've seen the whole series, it'll shade the experience of understanding how strange it is that their relationship took place almost entirely electronically. If it'll make it seem like they actually knew each other in some ways better than they actually did. But I would say so far, so good in that I think it's really powerful in demonstrating kind of the fantasy world that they both lived in. Yeah. And any, like any sort of ways that I was thrown by, it could have been solved pretty easily. with just like some signifier that it wasn't is, a real. Yeah. Well, I think between his social anxiety and her body image issues, I think it makes sense to me that they like, despite living, they lived an hour away and they had this like, it, you know, extremely passionate 
if that's what you want to call it, romance, you know, where they're exchanging I love yous and it's like the height of dramatic Romeo and Juliet-esque, you know, teenage drama. Um, but they weren't trying to see each other every chance they got because it wasn't about the reality of each other. Do you know what I mean? It's about right. this sort of like textual fantasy. And I think it's about, and I think eventually what you'll see is them sort of tr- talking across each other rather than to each other, which it can happen in text um, really easily. Um, I, l- I really like this depiction of Conrad as like this socially anxious um, boy, this like all this stuff that comes up with him working on the boat and how it's hard for him to reacclimate, how we see him trying to like study pop culture so that he has something to talk about at a party. And he's like trying to talk he about shows up. Kim Ye. Like, <laughs> he's like, have you heard about Kim Ye? Right? I mean, um, and he's he's hyping himself on the mirror, which actually is a scene that also happens in the dropout, uh, where Amanda Seyfried's character is like yeah. hyping herself up in the mirror to go to a party. So it's just sort of like Liz Hannah, I think, is very interested in. I, I wonder if Liz Hannah has a like a mirror hype up routine before she goes to parties. Um, but yeah, he like I will say really quickly though, a, a nit that I will pick with the show is um. In trying in trying to get a grasp of the timeline, I was a little confused by what Conrad was Googling because he was looking at Occupy Wall Street, some <laughs> sealed TMZ uh, video, um, and then photos from Fifty Shades of Grey, which didn't come out until after Conrad died, but maybe like the photos were online. I don't know. It was like, I was like, what year are we trying to represent right. with this t- trinity of, of images here? Um but yeah, all of all of that I thought was really good. Um, something that I really love is that when Conrad and Michelle meet, we understand from context that like all of this has kind of happened before for both of them, that he is at the tail end of a sort of disastrous long distance relationship with a girl that is gone poorly in such a way that like her father is like absolutely do not contact her again. And then we get these hints from Michelle, whether it's her friendship with Susie or something else that her parents are like, this is like before for you, um, that something like this has happened to her before. Um, what what does that tell you about these kids and the story they're trying to tell? You're right that they didn't they didn't come into this clean, right? Like free of baggage or free of sort of their own their own unmet needs, basically. And it sets up, I think it it sets you up for the expectation of the toxicity that's going to develop and the sort of tragedy of that developing out of two people, at least initially, you know, trying to find connection with each other. Yeah. But they just weren't, they were sort of, they were set up to fail just by their own sort of by the things that they were both struggling with initially. And it's, that does like, there are a lot of things that mirror elements of the case, right? Where, so Conrad had attempted suicide before unsuccessfully. Right. Um, and part of the case, um, part of the defense, part of Michelle's defense, I think hinged on, you know, he, he tried to commit, he'd attempted suicide before. Clearly, this is a, a person who is really struggling. So how could it be that she had caused it? Right. And then you see her already lying about her relationship with Conrad. Um, wait, I might be, I think I'm mixing stuff up. You mean no, like I'm mixing in up the, the past and the present because she lies, she lies in the future. Never mind. Never mind. Well, no, she lies in the present, like in the never have I ever game. She lies about sort of what happened on the beach. Right. You know, the girls are like, never have I ever had sex on the beach. You know what I mean? And then she implies that like more happened. What I was thinking of was her lying about him showing up, um, lying about the fact that he came and said goodbye to her and that he brought her flowers. But that was in the present. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, it's, it's true. Like she, she, she lies easily. And I think she lies initially. She lies kind of innocently. It's all, it's all again to get like attention and feel like she belongs and, well, you know, lying about how far you went with a guy on a beach somewhere 
is an innocent lie. And then when it spirals out from there, um, that's how we land where we are. And my central point here is that one of the major themes and and things that's on display here is people searching for a reason why this happened. Mm -hmm. And there are scenes, and I think seeing them meet each other and seeing some of the earliest flashbacks does a really good job of saying, oh, are you thinking that this is why? Well, maybe this is why. Well, maybe this is why. Well, couldn't it be this? Even this far along ago, like they were already acting in this way. She was acting in this way. He was struggling with this. She couldn't deal with this. She lied. He's not sleeping. She's not like you Mm -hmm. get all of those. You start to sort of develop actually like sort of your own frustration with just like, I wish I could find an answer in this. And it's really, really complicated. And I think something that's really smart is the way that they shoot their first, um, their first like date, the like beach boardwalk montage and the biking and the beach and all that stuff like that. There aren't any sinister overtones to that. I think that's shot. I mean, at least as far as I, you can disagree with me, but like, well, I totally disagree with you. Okay. All right. He he leaves his sister like, no, I mean the the middle of a town, but I'm Yes. Absolutely. But I think, and, and like, she has reluctant, she's, she's obviously reluctant. He doesn't press it, but she obviously has her own complicated feelings around like their kissing and stuff like that. Like all of that's in there. And then she's like afraid that he's mad at her. So she like kisses him again to like, please. him. like all that's in there. But I think, I mean, more like the aesthetic of it, like the, the soundtrack, which is like, you know, a sixties bop, the like sunny beach, scenery of it all. Um, I think they shot all of that fairly straight, uh, in order to let the doom that we know is coming, like loom over it, but not be the like overt text of it. Does that make any sense? Or you can disagree. That's okay. That makes a lot of sense. I I think it, I think it's shot like that to present a contrast in the moment too, though, because the vibe is so upbeat and cheerful and almost wholesome. And then as soon as he gets back, yeah, like he's done a pretty bad thing. And in the act of, you know, having this fun sort of romantic young puppy love date, like he's done a pretty bad thing. That's evidence of not really being able to, Maybe like, this is like a testament to my upbringing, but like, how old is his younger sister supposed to be? I don't know, like twelve, something like that. A few years younger, and they were like f- not that far from where they started because they biked there. I don't know. So, like, maybe this is my like latchkey kid talking, but it didn't strike me as as terrible of a thing as his dad said it was. Cause I was like, Oh, you just find your way home. Maybe I was abandoned by my sister too many times. And I was just sort of like not registering <laughs> that an, that I'm was an only child. So I'm <laughs> definitionally needy and would think that that was like a horrible, horrible act. Oh, I, I totally took that as like, there's a little, and, and on her part too, right. There's a little bit of like sociopathic is maybe a little bit strong just in in the case of that act but it's like they don't have any issue just like ditching a kid it also to me just felt like teens narcissistically wrapped up in themselves which is like you know what you do when you're a teen and you're like flirting with someone but i hear you i think i think i think you're probably right um so like i agree with that i just think it's an i think it's i think it's kind of an extreme version of that which is instructive I want to talk um, about parents in this. Um, we've got both Michelle's parents and Conrad's parents, um, all of which are doing, I think, a great job. Um, I just need to say the name. Norbert Leo Butts is one of my favorite names, actor names of all time. <laughs> he's a tremendous stage actor, and he's really good here um, as Conrad's dad. Um, but the the clear standout um, is Chloe Sevigny as uh, Conrad's mom, Lynn Roy. This is like Chloe Sevigny in her in her harried mom phase of life that she's doing like, uh, we are who we are the act and Russian doll. She's like playing these, um, tough flavors of mom. And I love her. I think she's really, really good, uh, in this show. Chloe Sevigny is from Massachusetts. And so she just like, I think she has this like slightly hard Massachusetts woman, like down pat. Um, what do you think? 
She really, no, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. That sort of like South Shore aesthetic is, is pretty spot on. I also, the other piece of like Massachusetts core is that in the first scene where we see the cops, there's dialogue about the Red Sox. Oh yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, come <laughs> on guys. I put that in my notes to ask you about. Um, One yeah. must reference the Boston Red Sox <laughs> in a casual conversation between members of law enforcement within the first 30 seconds of meeting them. Of course. Of course. Um, and th- the the idea that like uh, that Michelle is from Plainville and Connor is for where he's from in Massachusetts is like that's underlined in the, the the class tensions between these two families, right? That like Michelle is from a different class. I think my favorite scene that underlines that um, if it wasn't already apparent is when Michelle's mom like offers to stage uh, Lynn's house and Lynn's like, I rent and Michelle's mom's like, Oh, owning a house isn't for everyone, you know? And it's just sort of this like very, very quick chili. And I think this show is really smart in a number of scenes of establishing dynamics quickly and efficiently. Like my favorite actually example of this is when Lynn, the cops need Conrad's laptop and Lynn goes to her ex-husband's house to get the keys and his parents are there. And it all falls apart really quickly. And you see how toxic the grandfather is. You see they're talking about church. They're talking about their prejudices around mental health. All of that is just like baked into this really quick fight that has tension to it because she just needs to get the keys and go. And I just really loved how subtly a lot of this stuff is just sort of like sifted into the story as we go. So we don't have to like sit down and talk about like, well, church was really important for some parts of this family or, you know, these are, this is how they felt about mental health. It's all sort of, it, it they're showing us, not telling us time and time again. Um, how did that work for you? Yeah, totally the same. Really, really well. They're really, it's, it's quick. It's efficient. Um, I, I even, I tease, but I think some of the back and forth, um, with the detective and when we start getting to know um, the district attorney, like that's that's pretty deft as well. All right. Yeah. Let's hit the law and order uh, segment for you. The big law and order fan. We've got uh, a head detective whose interest in the case I want to talk to you about really quickly. And then we've got eventually, you know, in episode three, we meet Aya Cash's character. Um, you know, the, the real life uh, attorney here, uh, Katie. Rayburn and Katie. I love the introduction of Katie, which we get her in the Zumba class where she's trying to like out Zumba and much older woman. And that tells you, I think everything you need to know about this character. I loved that moment. I cash is one of my faves. And so I love her in this, in this role. Um, I think she does a great job throughout. Um, what do you make of this cop we have here played by, um, Kelly O'Coin, uh, Scott Gordon is the cop. Um, what do you think is his fascination or his doggedness with this case when other people are just telling him to sort of drop it and let it go? I actually don't feel like I have an, an answer to that. And I will say, I'm not sure I want to know. This is maybe a me thing. Okay. Um, it also might be a little bit of, uh, of difficulty post inventing Anna that frustrated me immensely with <laughs> its, desire for me to care about subcharacters' lives. Um, what I am interested in, in terms of that plot line, are the intricacies of attempting to prosecute something like this, where... You, you know, want to get in, to the in, court case. You want to get to I want to understand law. it. And this is and this is like <laughs> again, this is very much a me thing. Like I read a lot of nonfiction. Oh, yeah. A lot of this stuff, I think I probably am a little like tend to be further towards the, well, maybe it should just have been a documentary side right. of things when right. it comes to uh, true crime stories. Um and there are a couple times when, and it's nothing to do, like the performances are very good, but there are a couple times when we start getting into the like oh, well, is this going to be another rung on the ladder? And I'm like, I don't care. I really don't care. Unless you can tie that to, okay, this is a prosecutorial overreach because suicide right. in Massachusetts is not a criminal activity. Or like- Assist is suicide. I, I want to be it's in not, there. Yeah. Um, 
I like I want to be in in that world and I frankly like don't really care that much to be in the world of like what happened previously in these characters' developments that made them want to do X, Y, or Z. But hand to heart, that is maybe my own issue. No, like, and him, I think this is a good time for you to hit me with your like grander uh, theory of the case for the show and whether or not it's it's a good hang for you. So um, this is actually, I want to go back to Lynn for just one second. I think that performance is so important because she, I don't know about you, but like, she's the character who, first of all, I think the work that I think that performance is really, really important in not making the show seem like it's sensationalizing suicide because her pain is really, really profound and yeah, they don't shy away from it. Like you just see what seems like a very real depiction of grief and the awfulness of what's happened. But also don't overwhelm you with it, you know, it, su- such that it's an unbearable to watch because it would be unbearable to hang with a, a, a woman fully in the grief. And so you get these like moments, like my, one of my favorite is when she lays out four plates for pancakes and then just takes one away in an overhead shot where we don't even see her face. We just see that she was in the routine of laying out plates for all of her kids. And then one of her kids isn't there anymore or, you know, the more overt stuff with the rabbit. But like, I think, um, again, it's all just sort of sifted in there, uh, for us to pick up. Okay. You were saying. So, but you have a lot of, you have a lot of empathy for her and Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, I am rooting for this person to find peace in whatever way is possible here. I've gone back and forth on whether this is a real thing that I think. Okay. I have a hard time, and maybe this is a very superficial way to process television. I have a hard time with shows where I don't really feel genuinely like I like anyone. Hmm. Like where anyone seems like, and I I don't think that like the character of Lynn does not have a chance to make you feel that way. Right. Because like you're rooting for her, but you've only ever seen her in the worst possible moments. And it's very difficult for someone to be sort of like enthralling and charismatic and captivating in that way. And I don't know how something like that would fit into a show like this, but I think that's why moments like the Glee scene are important because I don't know that I've, I think I've found this show impressive more than I've found it entertaining. Mm. And the parts that have been most entertaining to me have had to do with the beginnings of the drama that takes place in the courtroom. But I don't think that that is the arena on which the most compelling performances and moments in the show have taken place. So I'm struggling a little bit with how to put those two things together. And if I can honestly say that I really like this show, I definitely would say things like it's worth watching if you want to see the performances. But I I don't like that. That seems a little bit like damning with faint praise. Well, you can. Um, This is something that Sean and I have been talking a lot about in terms of like some of the Oscar movies is like there's a difference between admiring a movie and loving a movie. Right. Yeah. And so like you, you're admiring the show, but maybe not loving the show. Is that what you're I saying? I very much admire the show. Yeah. Is what is definitely true. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a little on a different, uh, spot on the scale from you because w- what I really love in the show is, um, the, the sort of like radical empathy challenge where it's like, right. All right. We're going to present you with someone. It's going to be really hard for you to try to feel for them. And we're going to try to make you feel for them. And I like that exercise. And this I is also, sort of, yeah, go ahead. For, for what it's worth, I was pretty familiar with this case. Like I, I used yeah. to work in Massachusetts. I went to, I, I had family there when this was happening. Like I knew about this story in the moment and have been pretty aware of it. So maybe that's part of it. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it's not, it's not really giving me new information though. There are some elements of the treatment of it that, that I think is sort of makes you think in different ways. 
Um, yeah, and th- that's sort of some of the critique I had of We Crashed or The Dropout, where I'm just sort of like, I know this story already really well. So, you know, w- you know, give me more for why I'm watching this. Um, and then this is this is just a case where I I missed this entirely. So I don't know what I was doing in 2017, but not paying attention to this is is what I was doing. Um watching Glee in 2014, possibly, maybe. Um <laughs> Anything else you want to say about this this show or these episodes specifically? I think that's it. I think that's what I got so far. Again, okay. I, I do like, I think we've touched on this, but it is, it looks really great. I think it's really, really well shot. I think the costumes are great. Um, the aesthetics of it are, are uh, like it, they feel almost just turned up two percent in a way that I think is really effective. Like it's, it's mostly sort of subtle and deft and efficient, but they're not afraid to, you know, they're not afraid to give Michelle the big giant pep rally bullhorn <laughs> when she's doing the fundraiser. Right. Like there are some Homer's, moments like Homer's that for Conrad. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Like it, they'll go there. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And I think it, um, it makes its points, but it also just makes it sort of visually stimulating. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you know the case so much better than I do, but I think what I really appreciate is that there does not seem to be uh, any sort of idea of over-sensationalizing this already very sensational story. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think they're trying to tell it as sort of like quietly and honestly as they can. Like, you're right that the aesthetics are slightly over the top and that lends itself to like, um, Michelle's glee infested mind, you know, but I think that, um, the show itself is not trying to give you like a dun, dun, dun sort of, um, moment throughout, um, you know, unless you're counting Elle Fanning singing into a mirror, which is just, again, one of the best things I've ever seen on television. Um, but yeah, I just, I like that. I know that Jesse Barron was really involved in this. And then he said that they use like a ton of his notes, that he wasn't able, like a, a lot of stuff that he wasn't able to put into his Esquire article made his way into the show. So there's just like a ton of detail. I don't know this for a fact, but it feels to me like every single text message that they didn't change a word. And I found that to be true. I spot checked here and there and it was true. Yeah. But they've, I, th- I th- they've, yeah. They've changed very little. I, one thing that I'm curious, um, I believe in the real story, his father found his suicide notes yes. not his mother that's true um yeah. and but giving lynn that moment where there's a note yeah. for him the, the father there's a note for michelle and there's no note for her um yeah that was a tremendous moment but you're right that's a that's a fictionalization also and again this is only after three episodes um they have sort of hinted at his father being physically abusive but that was that was not sort of like a gray area in real life. And I think so far it's been that way, but I don't know if, if that holds. Um, it is also, I will say just in terms of like the pure television aspects after three episodes, like you can point to some things that are left to be revealed. Um, like if, and how Lynn is going to give Michelle the note, to her, um, we don't know how that's going to be handled. Um, what's what's going to happen when Lynn finds out? Like, you know, like uh, to this point, Lynn has been, she's reserved, but she has, she does have a connection with Michelle. So when she right. finds out the truth of, of the text messages, that tension is hanging over it. Um, yeah. Right. Um. So I, th- I think that, you know, and ag- again, I think because I am sort of fascinated by this, like, how do you tackle the challenge of both telling an insightful, like creating an insightful retelling of a true tragedy and also creating good, compelling and potentially entertaining, if we want to use that word, television, the pacing, I think, is good. Like they yeah. have things left to reveal. Yeah. And they're the episodes, the first two episodes are like around 45 minutes. So they're like, they're not, they don't feel bloated at all. They feel pretty like, um, 
Swift. All right. Well, I think that's that's it for us on the girl from Plainville. That is, this is like a an admire from Nora, and a and a hard like from me, um, and a hard love for from both of us. I think for Elle Fanning. Uh, you know, if you want to see ten out of ten, I think this is like one of the best things you'll probably see an actress do on television this year. Uh, is what Elle Fanning's doing in this. So if you're an Elle Fanning completist, um, you know, please do check out the girl from Plainville. Uh, if you listen to all of this and haven't watched it yet, I. Hats off to you. Um, Elsewhere in the Prestige TV podcast feed, uh, we've got some great coverage of Atlanta. Last week, there was a great episode on Pachinko. Um, You can hear Juliet uh, break down Bridgerton. Like, there's a lot going on. Um, So so check it all out. Uh, Nora, where can folks find you? On the Ringer NFL show. Um, I think we're we're on our off-season cadence of every Wednesday. And pretty soon, mm-hmm. I would watch a little a little feed called Every Single Album. So a watch this space oh. to tie us up here. That's exciting. Uh, you can find me on the Ringerverse podcast over on the Big Pick uh, here and there and on a newest show called Trial by Content. Uh, so that is, we are busy over here at the Ringer podcast feed. Uh, this episode was produced by Erica Cervantes and we will see you next time. Bye.